everyone. Uh, it's great to see you all here once again on this Wednesday night. Um, I hope that uh, everyone's been having a, a good week and uh, continuing to enjoy our time as we study through the Old Testament here. Uh, we're continuing, as I'm sure you know, our study through the book of Numbers. That's been an interesting ride, uh, I think, for, for most of us, but I hope that we've been able to pick up some things along the way to learn a little bit more about the context of Scripture as a whole, about how uh, the Old Testament fits in with the New Testament, and uh, just the lessons that we can see there. I think uh, we've also seen a great deal about the nature of mankind, uh, that we face many of the same issues as the Old Testament Israelites did, that although uh, they may manifest themselves in different ways, that the heart and nature of fallen man remains the same. That we still fight the same battles with sin, with temptation, and with rebellion that they fought so long ago. And for our study tonight, uh, we're going to be in Numbers chapter 19. And so as we continue through the book of Numbers, um, we find ourselves... Uh, kind of drawing near the end of their wanderings in the wilderness. That we see the people of Israel brought to the very edge of the promised land after their exile from Egypt. That They uh, fail to enter into the promised land. They rebel against God and against Moses and are punished for it uh, by wandering in the wilderness, in the desert, for 40 years, waiting for the rebellious generation to die out and for their children to take their place, to go in and take hold of the promises that God had given to them. And so as we're going through this time, uh, it's worth keeping in mind that what they were witnessing through all this was essentially waiting for this generation to die, uh, that they were biding their time as these people grew old and died because of their rebellion against God, that they were not allowed to enter into the promised land. And so for the chapter we're looking at tonight, it talks a lot about death. And uh, the people of Israel at this point in time were surrounded by death. They were making their way through the desert, um, probably almost daily burying people from this older generation, waiting for the last ones to pass and for God to call them to go in to the promised land. And so as all this is going on, they're seeing the consequences of sin being lived out. They have this very graphic reminder set before them of what happens when people rebel against God, when they fail to obey God and to do what God has called them to. Uh, so they see that all around them. They also have been seeing in this time the faithfulness of God, that despite the sin and rebellion of the people, despite the fact that they are waiting for God to fulfill the special promises he'd given them, that they also were able to witness his love and his care and his faithfulness to them, that he miraculously provided food and water for them when needed, that he continued to affirm his promises to the people, that he would bring them into the promised land, into a place of blessing, that they were still his people and that he would still look after them and care for them. And our chapter tonight is going to be interesting. This is one on a, a first read-through. You may, may look over it, may even see the, the titles, the headings in your Bible and say, what does this have to do with us today? How on earth can this apply to us here living in the United States at this point in time, so far separated uh, from the people of Israel 
And as we read through this chapter, we're going to notice some themes that I want you guys to look for that should stand out to us. A lot of this that we're reading over tonight deals with uncleanness or sin. Uh, We've read a lot about that as we read through the Old Testament law. So much of the Old Testament law was devoted to the holiness of God. And a big part of the holiness of God is understanding the sinfulness of mankind. That man is inherently unclean and sinful. Our sins separate us from God. And that's why God had to do something. And a lot of that deals with laying out the sinfulness of man and God's solution for that. We see the sacrifices God gave the people of Israel to cover over their sins, to purify them, to make them clean and holy so that they could live in community with a holy God. And so we'll see that theme developed more again tonight, talking about uncleanness, sinfulness, and the issues that brings for the people. The solution given in this chapter is a ritual for purification to make the people ritually pure or clean, able to come into God's presence once again. So we see sin, we see a problem, and we see a solution given in this chapter. We're going to read a little bit about what God has offered the people, how God has provided for their purification. We see that God will give a perfect sacrifice for their purification. We see help with sin. We see the consequences of refusing to deal with their uncleanliness. And we also see God step in and make a way for people to be with him. And so all these things should sound familiar to us if we're spending any time in our Bibles, studies in the New Testament, that this is some concepts, these are some concepts that should really ring a bell for us. They should sound quite familiar, even though the setting is a little foreign to us. And so tonight, we're going to learn as we study through that God has provided a sacrifice, in this case, for the people of Israel. But the truth of that applies to us here today, that God has provided a sacrifice that is sufficient to purify his people's uncleanness, his people's sinfulness. And the sacrifice allows sinful people to dwell in God's presence. And the sacrifice that God has given, that God has made, the way he has dealt with this, is the only means to cover over sin, to deal with it, and to receive God's favor, to dwell in community with him. So this is an important truth for us to be reminded of, that we will see the gospel here tonight in the book of Numbers. So that being said, let's go ahead and get started through our time in God's word. So Numbers chapter 19. We'll read through the whole chapter here and then break it down a little further as we study on. Numbers 19.1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel that they bring you an unblemished red heifer in which is no defect and on which a yoke has never been placed. You shall give it to Eliezer the priest, and it shall be brought outside the camp and be slaughtered in his presence. Next, Eliezer the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide and its flesh and its blood with its refuse shall be burned. 
The priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet material and cast it into the midst of the burning heifer. The priest shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns it shall also wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. Now a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as water to remove impurity. It is purification from sin. The one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And it shall be a perpetual statute to the sons of Israel and to the alien who sojourns among them. The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. That one shall purify himself from uncleanness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. And then he shall be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he shall not be clean. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from Israel. Because the water for impurity was not sprinkled on him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. This is the law. When a man dies in a tent, everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. Every open vessel which has no covering tied down on it shall be unclean. Also, anyone who in the field, open field touches one who has been slain with a sword or who has died naturally or a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. Then for the unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt purification from sin and flowing water shall be added to them in a vessel. A clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on the persons who were there and on the one who touched the bone or the one slain or the one dying naturally or the grave. Then the clean person shall sprinkle on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day, he shall purify him from uncleanness and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and he shall be clean by evening. But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself from uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water for impurity has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. So it shall be a perpetual statute for them. And he who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes. And he who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. Furthermore, anything that the unclean person touches shall be unclean. And the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. So, a lot of steps there, a lot of instructions given in this chapter on how they're to deal with all this stuff, what the steps are to be, how they're to go about it, and how they're to be made pure and clean before God. And so we look at those first few verses again, and we note a few things. So, Namely, the first part, that they're to sacrifice a red heifer. Uh, this sacrifice was unique. We've read about many other sacrifices in our study through the Old Testament thus far. But those all involved bulls, goats, sheep. Uh, this is the only sacrifice that they were commanded to do that involved a female cow. Uh, so it kind of stands out just based on that. We also notice that this cow, this heifer, had to be perfect. It couldn't have been used for any work or anything yet. That this was to be a spotless, 
unblemished sacrifice, as all the sacrifices they were commanded to do were to be. And again, that points us forward to the need for a perfect sacrifice for sins. That all of this was designed to help the Israelites look forward to the coming Messiah, to cover over their sins and to remind them that God was making a way for them to be right before him. So the need for a perfect sacrifice. So the priest was to go out with this. They were to slaughter the animal, take the blood, and sprinkle some of it on the tent of meeting, on the tabernacle. This was done, again, just to to purify the tabernacle. That because of the sinfulness of man, even these holy things that were dedicated to God, used in the sacrifices, where God would meet with his people, still had to be purified in order for God to be there. That the mere contact with people would in some way make them impure. So every part of the animal is burned together. Uh, they throw in some other things with it, cedar, hyssop, um, some material. And it's interesting to note too that the preparations for this sacrifice, sacrificing the animal, made the priest who did it unclean that to do so he had to come into contact with a dead animal, which by default rendered him unclean, that he had to wash himself, wait a certain period of time, and then was allowed to be ceremonially clean and able to go back into the camp. And so after the priest kind of goes through the first part of this, another man comes in, uh, gathers the ashes, um, and takes them outside the camp and sets them off to the side. And it's said that they were to remove impurity. That was the whole goal of this. They were to take the ashes from this perfect sacrifice and to save them in order to perform this purification ritual to help people become clean and pure before God through this perfect sacrifice. It's also interesting to note that all this was done outside of the camp of the people of Israel. And so if we are familiar with our our New Testament. Uh, It's fascinating as we're studying through the early part of the Old Testament especially to look at the book of Hebrews and see the connections between the sacrifices given in the Old Testament, the laws from the Old Testament, and how those are fulfilled in the coming of Christ and what that looks like for us today. Hebrews 13.12 tells us that Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. That Christ, when he was led out to be crucified, they took him outside the gate of the city, outside of Jerusalem, to be killed for our sins, to suffer the consequences and the penalty for our sins outside the gate of the city. In the same way, this sacrifice was to be performed outside the camp of the people of Israel, just as a foreshadowing of the work Christ would do in the future. And so we see in these early verses here that God provided a sacrifice for unclean people to be purified. And this is important to remember, uh, that we see in the laws laid out here, we see even mentioned in this this chapter here, that uncleanness was a problem that was in many ways unavoidable and that it had to be dealt with. And so God provided a way for the people to deal with this, to be clean before him, that he didn't expect them to deal with this on their own, that he provided 
a means for them. And so the next few verses go in a little more detail into how God provided for that. Uh, We'll look again at chapter 19, verse 11. It says, The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. That one shall purify himself from uncleanness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. And then he shall be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he shall not be clean. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died, and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from Israel. Because the water for impurity was not sprinkled on him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. And so this uncleanness, this ritual unholiness, is a problem. That this is something that nearly everyone has to deal with in this context. Everyone, certainly with uh, all the other laws and issues that came about. But as a reminder, the people in this time are dealing with many, many deaths. They're waiting for this entire generation to die. They're probably every day burying their parents' generation as they go through the desert. And so every person at some point is coming into contact with a corpse, with a dead body. And because of that, they become unclean. They have to find a way to be made clean that they could come back into God's presence in the camp with the people of God. And so the instructions given for this are that uh, the third day and the seventh day after whatever event happened that made them unclean, they're to go and perform this ceremony to become clean once again. And we see in this, this section here as well that the people remain unclean if they are not obedient to God's commands here. That this is the only way to deal with this. They have to follow these instructions or else not only will they be unclean, they'll be cut off from the rest of the nation. That if they want to continue to live in God's favor with the rest of the people of Israel, that they have to be obedient to him and they have to follow these instructions God has given them. That this is the only way to deal with this, and they have to be diligent to obey. Uh, We see also here that a refusal to be purified, to be obedient to God in this context, would defile the tabernacle. The, The presence of God was allowed with these people by the sacrifices, by the laws and the different things he he had given them to cover over their sins, to make them holy before him. And so a refusal to be clean before God, to deal with these issues, would defile the tabernacle, would make it unholy, the place that was supposed to be holy and set apart for God. And it's interesting, too, as we, uh, we study through all of these things, doing uh, some research as I was preparing for this message, uh, I was reading about the history of the, the red heifer sacrifice. And this is a well-known thing within religious Judaism. This was you know, a big part of their dedication for the service of the tabernacle. And uh, There's actually a group of people in Israel today that are preparing, they hope someday, to be able to build a new temple in Jerusalem. And this is one of the things they've been waiting for in order to do that. They've been searching all around the world, trying to find and breed the perfect red heifer that they could perform the ceremony with um, and the, the resource I was looking at pointed out that the whole nation of Israel under this context is still considered 
ceremonially unclean, that none of them would be able to serve in this new temple they want to build until they can perform this red heifer sacrifice. That's how serious they take this command to be made clean before God. Obviously, for us today, uh, we have a little different take on that situation uh, with the coming of Christ and the new covenant that we live under. But it is interesting to think about that context, just how serious of a deal this was, how important it was for them to observe this sacrifice. And this section reminds us that God cannot reside with impure people. And that's so much of what we see uh, in our study through the Old Testament, especially Leviticus, Numbers, and as we continue on to Deuteronomy, that God is holy and that God desires to be with people, with his people, but that he cannot reside with an impure people, that they have to follow these instructions to be pure and holy before God. And again, it reminds us too that everybody is unclean, that that's unavoidable in a fallen world, that the sin nature of mankind has tainted everyone, that all are guilty before God and need that perfect sacrifice to make us pure and holy in his sight. Verse 14. This is the law. When a man dies in a tent, everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. Every open vessel which has no covering tied down on it shall be unclean. Also, anyone who in the open field touches one who has been slain with a sword or who has died naturally or a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. Then the unclean person, they shall... Then for the unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt purification from sin, and flowing water shall be added to them in a vessel. A clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on the persons who were there and on the one who touched the bone or the one slain or the one dying naturally or the grave. Then the clean person shall sprinkle on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day, he shall purify him from uncleanness and he shall wash his clothes and bathe, bathe himself in water and shall be clean by evening. And so this section gives them more specific instructions on how to deal with this uncleanness as well as talking about how it spreads. The, the uncleanness was contagious in many ways. Now the person who was unclean, if they touched something else, touched another person while they were still unclean, before they had performed this ceremony, then that uncleanness would spread to whatever objects or um, people they had come into contact with. And so in this case, it talks again about death in a tent, that they were in the wilderness, living in tents, uh, waiting for God to lead them, for this generation to die off. Probably a lot of people were dying in their tents. That was their homes at this point. And so when that happens, everyone who was exposed to it is made unclean. Any open containers left out inside the tent were unclean. Uh, and again, they remind that contact with a corpse, a grave, any human remains would also make them unclean. That this whole process resulted in probably multiple people becoming unclean. And so they give a little more uh, insight onto how the ceremony was to be performed. 
in verse 17, it talks about how they take the ashes from the red heifer, from the perfect sacrificial animal, and they mix it with water in some sort of container, and then they take that, and it says they take hyssop, uh, some sort of branch, dip it in there and sprinkle it on whatever was unclean. That they were to do this in order to purify these people and make them clean once again. Uh, this, this one reminds us, uh, I think if we're familiar with the Psalms, Psalm 51 was uh, David's great psalm of repentance after his adultery and murder uh, that he repented of before the Lord. In Psalm 51, 7, David says, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And I have to imagine when David penned that, that he probably was thinking back to some of these sections of the Old Testament. That wasn't so much that he thought that this particular plant is what made him clean, but he knew the ritual that was to be followed in order to make someone clean, to deal with sins, to make them right and holy before God once again. And so the mixture is sprinkled on whatever objects or people are unclean, uh, that it requires the help of someone who is clean, who hasn't been tainted by this situation. So this other person comes in and helps them with this special mixture of the ashes and the water. And then after they do this twice, the third and the seventh day, after their exposure to the dead body or whatever it may have been, uh, then the unclean person was allowed to wash their clothes, to bathe, and then to return back into society, to be considered clean once again. And this purification that God offered here to deal with this uncleanness, with sin, was freely offered to the people. That They had all the means of it sitting there, set aside, ready to be used. But the people had to undertake this task in faith and in obedience to God. And they were trusting God to make them clean and holy once again. And they had to be obedient to use the means that he had provided. They had to take hold of what he had given them and use it. They couldn't just sit there and wait. They still had to take some active role within that. And it also reminds us how quickly this impurity spread, that sin and impurity spread easily and contaminate all that they come into contact with. And this is just as true for us today as it was for Israel in the Old Testament, that sin is messy. Sin gets messy fast, and sin contaminates and spreads, that it spreads quickly and has to be dealt with. Verse 20, But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself from uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly, because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord, the water for impurity has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. So it shall be a perpetual statute for them. And he who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes. And he who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. Furthermore, anything that the unclean person touches shall be unclean. And the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. This section deals a little more with refusal to follow these directions, refusal to be purified 
to be made clean, to be made holy from their sin. So again, failure to follow these directions by an unclean person would result in excommunication from the people of Israel. They would no longer be allowed to be part of the nation. They could not dwell with the people in the presence of God. They could not experience God's blessing that he had promised to the people. And they could not experience God's presence the way he desired to give it to them. That failure to follow these instructions, failure to be purified from sin was a big problem and carried some harsh consequences. Failure to purify oneself from the sin would also, again, result in the defilement of the sanctuary, of the tabernacle, the, the place where God dwelled, where God spoke to Moses and led his people from, would become impure, that the dwelling place of God would be violated by a person not being obedient to this, that God required a holy people and these people had to obey him in order for him to dwell among them and to experience the joy and blessings that come along with that. And only the water of impurity, as they called it, the special water they made with the ashes from the cow, can purify. This was the only way they could deal with this. There were not any other means given. There were not other sacrifices or other routes they could take to be made pure. They had to follow the instructions here. They had to use the means God had provided for them to be made pure. It's interesting, too, to see the helper, whoever uh, was aiding the unclean person, would also be made unclean temporarily. That dealing with this uncleanness, with this sin, uh, was messy enough that the person helping was considered unclean for the remainder of the day, that they still had to wash themselves and uh, follow the rest of this in order to be able to enter back into the camp after helping another person. Um, that, that was a necessary part of this ritual. And again, we see how quickly this uncleanness can spread, that like, like uncleanliness, that sin can spread so quickly and so dangerously. And this section reminds us that God has provided a way for his people to be pure, that there is only one way, that we see so many different things within the world uh, today, as they did back then, I'm sure, that people know God has placed it on our hearts that eternity is something we need to, to consider, that we know that there's something bigger out there, that there's something wrong with humanity, that we need to be made right with God. And there is no other way to be made right with God than the one he has provided for us. There's no other gospel. There's no way to conquer sin. No other religions have the answer. That God has provided a perfect sacrifice, and that is it. You can accept it, or you can leave it. And that is all that God offers. Uh, as we read through the New Testament, we're reminded again, I'm sure many of you have heard this verse before, Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That God has made a way, but it's the only way. And we don't get to choose 
that way. We have to be obedient and faithful to the means he has provided for us. And so that brings us back again to this main point that God has provided a sacrifice, that he provided the people of Old Testament Israel with this perfect sacrifice to make them clean, to purify their sins and their uncleanness and allow them to dwell within his presence. In much the same way, he has made a sacrifice for us, a perfect sacrifice to purify our sinfulness and our uncleanness, to make us right and holy with him and allow us to dwell within his presence. That this sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus, is the only way to deal with sin, the only way to receive God's favor. And as we go through life, we will become unclean. That that's part of life in a fallen world. That we have our sin nature within us fighting with the spirit. We're surrounded by a world that has been tainted by sin and drawn away from its creator. And so we will become unclean. And the question with that is, what are we going to do? What do we do with our sins? I would imagine most of us here today have already put our hope and our faith in Christ for our salvation. But there's something we need to remember with that, that uh, it's, it's not something we just do once and forget. That God has saved us, that the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient to cover over our sins. But as we continue to seek after God, to be sanctified, to grow in that, we will continue to sin. We'll continue to grow. And we'll continue to grow in our understanding of the gospel. That we all need the hope and power of the gospel just as much today as we do when we first came to faith. We have to remember to be quick to turn back to God when we sin. To repent from the deeds we do that are not in accordance with his word. And to trust in him to make us right. That the only way to deal with sin is through the hope and power of the gospel, through the sacrifice of Christ, and through trust in God and his spirit to change us from within. We can't be strong enough on our own. We can't be disciplined enough on our own. That our hope is the power of the gospel. Uh, I think as I'm working uh, in, in this area in Wyoming, um, I'm sure most of you at some point have uh, run into some people from the Church of Latter-day Saints. And it's an interesting religion. You know, in many ways, they, they try to say they believe the same things we do. We know that's clearly not the case. But one of the primary differences we see with Mormonism is that they rely on their works, that they trust that God will save them if they have done everything they can do. And they have no peace because of that. How do they know when they've done enough? How do they know when they've earned God's favor? And we don't have to worry about that, that we can hope and trust in God, that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. It was enough to cover over all of our sins, that we can have peace and hope knowing that God has saved us. He has paid that debt by the perfect sacrifice of his son once and for all, that we can have peace and hope in him. And so we go back to the book of Hebrews in conclusion. 
Hebrews 9, 13, and 14 says, For the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So if the sacrifice we just read about here, the ashes of a heifer, are enough to cleanse those who have been defiled, to sanctify the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ help us? How much more will the blood of Christ cleanse our consciences, purify us from the dead works of our flesh, and help us to stand before God, clean, righteous, and holy in his sight as we serve him? Let's pray. I thank you, Father, for your word. I thank you for the message you've given here tonight, God. I thank you uh, for the book of Numbers, that although it's confusing in many ways for us here today, that uh, there's so much we have to learn from the examples of the people of Israel, from Moses and Aaron, so much to learn about you. I pray that you would be with us uh, as we go from here, Father. I pray that you would help us to remember these lessons, Lord. I pray that we would have hope and peace knowing that you have made that perfect sacrifice that we could never do. I pray that uh, we would be quick to turn to you, even in the midst of our sins, to repent of those, to bring them before you, knowing that you have paid for them and you have made a way for us to be right before you. I pray as you commanded the people of Israel that we would be obedient to the means you have given us, Lord, that we would follow through on our part to trust in you, to hope in you, Lord, to repent and to know that you are faithful. I pray that you would uh, be over all of these things, Lord, that you would be glorified in every aspect of our lives, God, that we would all be growing more into your image, submitting all of our lives to you, that you would be made known, Lord. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Well, amen. Let's, uh, let's